Well, good evening, Eastside Church family. Tonight, we are going to be finishing up our study of Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And we've been on this study for several months now. And uh, we've come to the last chapter. And last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 22 on the adequacy of God. And uh, tonight, we'll seek to finish up the second part of that chapter and finish out the book as well. And I just want to give a quick review over the first part of chapter 22. Dr. Packer is drawing from the book of Romans primarily for this lesson on the adequacy of God. And he wants, to, wants us to see the riches of truth that are found in the book of Romans. And he says there are several things that we can find in the book of Romans, such as precious doctrine, truth about God. We can see in Romans that it is a book of life that describes for us how we can be in relationship with God and teaches us what we need to know for this life as well as the life to come. It is a book of the church, teaches us who God's people are and how God loves his people and draws them to himself. Uh, it is really a personal letter. It is God's personal letter to his children. And so all of these we can find in the book of Romans. And in particular, he was focusing our attention on Romans chapter 8, because Romans chapter 8 is like the climax of the book of Romans, really of what, all that Paul is trying to accomplish in this letter. And in Romans chapter 8, he wants us to see the adequacy of the grace of God in verses 1 through 30. But then he focuses most of the chapter by looking at verses 31 to 39 of Romans chapter 8, which focuses on the adequacy of God himself, the God of grace. And so he wants us to apply these doctrines. And so in verse 31, Paul asked the question, what shall we say then in response to these things? Paul wants us to come to a conclusion and to apply the things that he has been teaching us in verses 1 through 30 of Romans chapter 8, as well as from chapter 1 all the way to this point in the book of Romans. And what is it that defines Christians in every age? One is a commitment to all-around righteousness, that true children of God seek to do what is right and seek to please their Father and to live in a fulfillment of the Father's heavenly pattern of what it means to be a child of God. And also one thing that characterizes Christians in every age is just exposure to all-around pressures. And that can be just the pressures of life, of living in a fallen world, but also more specifically to the Christian faith of facing pressures of opposition, persecution, and rejection. And so then Paul says, what shall we say in response to these things? He gives us four main thoughts that he really wants us to implant deeply within our hearts. And the first of those is that God is for us. He says, if God is for us, who is against us? And the point that Paul is making here is that no opposition can finally crush us. Because of the adequacy of God as our sovereign protector, as well as the decisiveness of his covenant commitment to us. And so God is fully adequate to protect us. He is also fully committed to his covenant 
that he has entered into with us. And so what was Paul's purpose in asking this question, if God is for us, who is against us? Well, mainly Paul is countering fear. The timid Christian's fear of the forces which he feels are massed against him. So Paul wants us to to have a confidence and assurance that we are God's children and to allow that assurance to overflow into other areas of our life as well, where we can have trust in our adequate, all-sufficient God. So he is countering fear. And Paul knows that sooner or later, this is going to become a problem for every Christian. So Paul, in effect, says, think, God is for you. You see what that means. Now reckon up who is against you and ask yourself how the two sides compare. And there's no competition, is there? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? There is no enemy that can prevail over the sovereign might and power of God. So he says in the chapter, you will find in thus knowing God as your sovereign protector, irrevocably committed to you in the covenant of grace, both freedom from fear and new strength for the fight. So in asking the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul wants to strip away fear and doubt from our minds. And then Paul wants wants us to understand that there is no good thing that God is going to withhold from his children. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. And so the point that Paul is making here is that no good thing will finally be withheld from us. And this is because of the adequacy of God as our sovereign benefactor and the decisiveness of his redeeming work for us. And so God can not only protect us, but he is also our provider, our benefactor. And he is also not only committed to his covenant with us, but he is committed to the redeeming work of Christ for us. There is no turning back from that. And so he wants us to think about the costliness of our redemption. He did not spare his own son. In other words, God gave us the greatest gift that could possibly be given in the sacrifice of his own son. So if he gave us Christ, then what's to say that God would not give us all things? It's really an argument from the greater to the lesser. It is no no thing at all for God to give us all things if he's already given us Christ, the costliest gift that he could possibly give. He reminds us of the effectiveness of our redemption. God gave him up for us all. And here J.I. Packer enforces or reminds us of the truth that the redemption of Christ is not just an open-ended possibility. It is, it is rather decisive and purposeful in that in eternity past, God chose by his grace, out of his love, God chose to save people and specific people. He elected them, he chose them, and he put them in Christ. He entrusted those people to Christ. And so when Jesus came in his incarnate life, He came to represent those people. He came to die for them. He came to rise again for them. He came then to rise and ascend to heaven where he intercedes for them. 
And so the redemption of Christ is not just potential or possible. It is effective, meaning that God cannot renege on his obligations to us because the redemption of Christ has accomplished already all that we need. And he reminds us then of the consequences of our redemption, that God will give us all things. So the costliness of our redemption is Christ himself. The effectiveness of our redemption is that Christ gave himself specifically and purposefully with intent and with effect for his people. And therefore then, they will not fail to receive the benefits that flow to them from that redemption, which is all things, all the blessings that God has in store for us in our heavenly inheritance in Christ. And then we come then to the what we're going to focus our attention on tonight, and that is who will accuse us? Who will accuse us? Paul asked the question toward the end of Romans chapter 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? And so what Paul is doing here is he is asking the question, where is our accuser? Where is there anyone who can possibly bring a charge or an accusation against us? And what Paul is wanting us to grasp from this statement is that there is no accusation, no charge that can ever disinherit us. Nothing that can take us out of God's justifying grace. And this is because of the adequacy of God as our sovereign champion and the decisiveness of his justifying verdict upon us. And so the adequacy of God, he is our protector, he is our benefactor, he is our champion, he is for us and has accomplished salvation for us. And he is committed to his covenant and the redemption of Christ is decisive and the justifying verdict that God has placed on our lives is final. Paul wrote the two previous verses, the ones that we looked at last week, to counter the Christian's fear of opposition and deprivation among men. So in the opening verses, how will he not, along with Christ, also give us all things? And in, in those verses, Paul is really... Um, helping us to get over the fear of opposition, the fear of lack, the fear of need that we might face in this world. But in this next verse, the one that we're focusing on right now, Paul writes this verse to counter the fear of rejection by God. So Paul is dealing with all of our fears, all of our doubts in this passage. Not only the fears that we have because of what people may say or do to us, but also the doubts and fears that sometimes enter into our hearts over whether or not God truly loves us and is committed to us. Paul wants to alleviate those fears. And so Dr. Packer says in the chapter that there are two sorts of sick consciences. Those that are not aware enough of sin and those that are not aware enough of pardon. And it's that second one that he is dealing with right now. Those that have the tendency to fear the condemnation of God, 
that they don't have a strong enough sense and awareness of their pardon, that they have been declared not guilty, welcomed by God. So Paul here speaks directly to the fear to which no Christian is a total stranger, that present justification may be no more than provisional, that it may one day be lost by reason of the imperfections of one's Christian life. In other words, Paul is dealing in Romans 8 with the surety, the certainty of our standing before God, the certainty of our justification, and the fact that it is an accomplished, settled verdict not something that is still hanging in the balance, waiting to see what our lives will be like, and then to see if it holds. No, justification by God, His verdict upon us, is not provisional, which means there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God. So Paul, in this passage, he's not denying the fact that Christians fail and fall. We sin we continue to struggle and do battle with sin and the flesh. But Paul does not question the sadness or the pain, the guilt even, of sins committed as a Christian. So as a Christian, when we sin, there is real guilt that we can feel, real conviction of the Spirit that we can feel over that sin, that sadness that accompanies that. But what Paul is emphatically denying in Romans 8, is that any lapses now can danger our justified status. In other words, is there any sin that the believer can commit that can separate him from the love of God? And Paul is saying no. The reason, he says, in effect, is simple. Nobody is in a position to get God's verdict reviewed. That is fascinating. That's a strong uh, point that he's making here in that, you know, in our criminal justice system, we have an appeals process. So if someone is convicted of a crime, they can make an appeal. And there are several layers to that appeal process. In some instances, they can appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court to seek to have their case heard and potentially reversed if new evidence or mistakes were found to be made in the trial or in the verdict. But here's the thing with God. There is no appeal that is necessary because God's verdict is always perfect and it's always final. So whatever God says of a Christian, you are declared just, you are declared not guilty. There's no more appeals process. There's no more, there's no double jeopardy of you having to go through that trial again and then possibly face the verdict of guilty. Having been declared not guilty by God, there is no one who can overturn that verdict. So who then will be the accuser of God's chosen ones? And what Paul is reminding us here is of God's grace in election. And what, what G.I. Packer is doing in fleshing out this part of Paul's letter is he is showing us the reasons why our justified verdict before God could never be brought up for appeal or overturned. And the first is because of God's electing grace. So God justified us, but that justification did not come out of the blue. That justifying verdict on us was something that God had planned from eternity past 
to place upon us, to declare over us. So there was nothing in our past that was a surprise to God. And because He is the all-knowing, all-wise, uh, all omnipotent God, he, not, he knows not only everything that led up before our conversion, but He also knows everything that will follow our conversion in our Christian life. God, in eternity past, chose that. He chose us specifically and individually to be a part of the family of God. So God has committed Himself to us in eternity past. And God does not renege on His obligations that He has made even to Himself. Paul reminds us of God's sovereignty in judgment. God is the one who holds all authority to render the verdict. So there is no higher appeals court. In our system, you know, a local judge can render a verdict, but that can be appealed to a higher authority, a higher a judge that's higher up on the chain, going all the way up to the Supreme Court. But there is no higher authority than God. God is the final authority. He is the sovereign judge. And He is the one who has justified us. So there's no one who can go over God's head, so to speak. So He has committed Himself to us from eternity past in election, and His judgment is sovereign that no one can overthrow. Nobody can ever challenge the verdict, not even the accuser of the brethren, that is, the devil himself. Nobody can alter God's decision over His head. There is only one judge. And nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change His mind. That's the thing, is God knew everything about us before He justified us. It's not as if any new evidence could come to light that would overturn the verdict. It's not like today where some cases, some older cases are being overthrown because of new evidence, possibly DNA evidence that was not available before. That's not the case with God. There's no new evidence that could come in because God is all-knowing. He knows everything about us, past, present, and future. For God justified you with, so to speak, His eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when He accepted you for Jesus' sake. And the verdict which He passed then was and is final. God couldn't find out any more about you than He already knew. He, had, he adopted you into His family and justified you, declared you innocent in His eternal court, knowing everything there is to know about you. There are no more surprises coming to God. And we also see in the Scriptures that judgment is a royal prerogative. In the ancient world, judgment was within the reign, the role of the king. And so God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so it is fully, completely His royal prerogative. The Sovereign Lord who justified you will take active steps to see that the status He has given you is maintained and enjoyed to the full. So loss of justification is inconceivable. God is not only the judge, but He's the King. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So there is no, like in our American system, you can have one branch challenge another branch. You know, the justice system might overthrow something that the legislative branch does or the legislative branch might impeach a justice. There is no, nothing like that in God's universe, in God's rule, because He is judge and king. He is the 
eternal, righteous, all-knowing, good, omnipotent monarch. And when he makes a decision in judgment, he also has the sovereign authority to see that judgment through to the end. So Paul reminds us of God's grace in election. He reminds us of God's sovereignty in judgment. And he also reminds us of Christ's effectiveness in mediation. Why is it that God could not reverse a verdict? Why is it that there is no new accusation or challenge that could come to our justified status? It's because Jesus is continuing to mediate for us. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is our ever-living, resurrected high priest who is for us. He is our advocate before the throne of God. He died. He is our advocate, our mediator. He is the one who died. And He died to save us from condemnation by bearing the penalty of our sins as our substitute. To say that our justified verdict can be overthrown and reversed is to say that Jesus' redemption for us is of no effect. And that cannot possibly be. He rose and was exalted, meaning that Jesus' atoning sacrifice was fully accepted. It was, it was right. It was finished. It was accomplished. And His resurrection was in demonstration of that. And when He rose, He was exalted as Prince and Savior that He might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel, including to us Gentiles who are part of the Israel of God. Jesus rose and is exalted to give us salvation. And now He intercedes for us with authority. That is, He intervenes in our interest to ensure that we receive all that He died to procure for us. Jesus died for us, He rose for us, and now He is in heaven interceding for us to make sure that we receive everything for which He died and rose again for. He is our advocate. He is there for us. And so the loss of justification is inconceivable. It cannot happen. So... Who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one, because God has justified us. Who can separate us then? Who can separate us then from the love of Christ? And here, Paul wants us to understand that there is no separation from Christ's love that can ever befall us. None. Zero. No separation from God or Christ or the love of God in Christ. And here we see the adequacy of God as our sovereign keeper. He is our sovereign protector, our sovereign benefactor. He is our sovereign champion, and He is our sovereign keeper. And here we see the decisiveness of His divine love in settling our destiny. His covenant is decisive. The redemption of Christ is decisive the mediation of Christ is decisive. And here, the divine love that settled our destiny is decisive. Here he talks about the love of God and he compares it to human love. He says, whereas human love for all its power in other ways 
cannot ensure that what is desired for the beloved will actually happen. Divine love is a function of omnipotence and has at its heart an almighty purpose to bless, which cannot be thwarted. So I might have loving intentions toward my wife or my children. And I might have a plan to carry out uh, that and to do something kind, loving for them. And that may be thwarted. Something could happen that I'm not in control of. That can't happen with God. Because He not only intends our love, but He is omnipotent and His love toward us cannot be thwarted. J.I. Packer says, For it is the privilege of all Christians to know for certain that God loves us immutably, that is unchangeably, and that nothing can at any time part us from that love or come between us and the final enjoyment of its fruits. There is nothing that can come between us and Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, and notice the extreme opposites that Paul uses in these verses, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, he uses these extreme opposites to show us that, you know, height or depth. And by implication, nothing in between. Not death or life or any other possible existences that there could be, not present or the future. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul displays God's all-sufficiency in this passage in two ways. One, God is adequate as our keeper. God keeps us. Who is the one who is responsible for our eternal salvation? Not us. It's God. 1 Peter 1.5, Peter says, Who through faith, as speaking of Christians, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It is through faith, but that faith is protected, kept, shielded by the power of God. The power of God keeps them believing as well as keeping them safe through believing. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. And the reason this is true is because faith itself is a gift of the gracious God. If faith were merely human, then our faith could fail. But saving faith is not merely human. It is a divine gift. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Even the faith itself is a gracious gift from above. And so God is adequate as our keeper, and he is also adequate as our end meaning that God is the end. He is the goal of everything. God is not a means to an end. He is the end and goal of our life's quest. And Jai Packer says in the book that when it comes to a loving relationship, those loving relationships 
are not a means to another end. They, they are the end themselves. In other words, a husband and a wife, they love each other, not in order to get something higher, not in order to get past that to something greater. That The love that they share is the goal. It is the end for which they were married. So it's not another, it's not a means to another end. It is the end. So also with God, we, we love God for the sake of loving God. That there's not something greater or higher or, or something else that we're seeking. God is the goal. Christ is the path and Christ is the prize. It has been said. So Christ is the way, but he's also the goal. He is that for which we are seeking. As Paul says in Philippians 3, I press on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. And so God is adequate as our keeper, but he's also adequate as our end. That is the, the meaning, the source, the, or, and the goal of all of life. He says in the chapter, the purpose of our relationship with God in Christ is the perfecting of the relationship itself. How could it be otherwise when it is a love relationship? So God is adequate in this further sense that in knowing him fully, we shall find ourselves fully satisfied, needing and desiring nothing more. Once more, Paul is countering fear. Fear this time of the unknown, whether in terms of unprecedented suffering or of a horrific future or of cosmic forces which one cannot measure or master, the focus of fear is the effect these things might have on one's fellowship with God by overwhelming both reason and faith and so destroying sanity and salvation together. So when Paul says in Romans 38 and 39, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, he's countering this fear. What is it that could possibly happen? What is it that could enter our lives? What suffering? What forces? What opposition? And Paul is saying there's nothing that can separate us from Christ. But, says Paul, we must fight this fear, for the bogey is unreal. Nothing, literally nothing, can separate us from the love of God. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he concludes the chapter by helping us to kind of bring it all to a conclusion. Everything that he has been trying to say throughout the whole book about knowing God and how we can know God in Christ. And he says, who is this God that we are to know? This God who is there, the God who is, that we are to know. He's the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth. He's the God of Romans, the God who justifies, the God who appeases his own divine wrath in the saving of sinners through Christ's redemption. He is the God who is supremely revealed in Jesus, no one has ever seen God, Jesus says in John 1.18, but the only begotten Son, he has come to declare him, to reveal him. This God is the three-in-one, Father, Son, and Spirit of historic Christian teaching. And so, how do we know this God? Really, what he's been driving at in this whole book. How do we know God? Well, we have to begin by knowing about him which is why his book spent a lot of time focusing on God's divine character. 
So we come to know his revealed character and his ways. We come to know his attributes of goodness and severity, of grace and mercy, as well as wrath and holiness. We come to know about God as the scriptures reveal him. And through this, we learn more about ourselves as fallen creatures bound for hell unless grace intervenes. And this is something he brought out several times throughout the book, is that the more that we know God, the more that we understand ourselves. The more we understand who we are, what we have been made for, where we currently stand, and how we can be saved and made right with God. So knowing God, we have to start with knowing about him through what is revealed in the Holy Scriptures about him. But then we want to move higher, don't we? We want to move beyond just knowing about God. We want, to, we want to know Him personally, in a personal, relational way. And so we give ourselves to God on the basis of His promise to give Himself to us. And so there is trust that's involved. There is faith that is involved. There is love that is involved. And so we ask for His mercy and we rest on His undertaking to forgive sinners for Jesus' sake. We bank our whole lives and entrust it to God on what he has done for us in Christ. And we then seek to grow closer to God in this relationship by becoming a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus is one who learns, one who follows, one who seeks to pattern his or her life after the master. Knowing God involves faith. Faith of assent, that is not only, uh, uh, that is agreeing with the facts, but then beyond that to consenting, uh, to entrusting ourselves to those facts, and then a commitment. Faith expresses itself in prayer and obedience. So knowing God involves a personal relationship. We begin with knowing about God, we then move higher and deeper into a personal relationship with God. And then knowing God climaxes in what he's been talking about in this last chapter, a full trust, a full resting confidence, a peace resting in the adequacy of God that dispels fear, knowing with assurance that we will be more than conquerors in Christ. And here I thought 1 John 4, 16 to 19 fit in really well with what J.I. Packer was talking about at this point in the chapter. John says in 1 John 4, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We rely, we trust in God's love for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. That's really what Paul is driving at in Romans 8, in speaking to us of the assurance that we can have uh, in God's love through Christ. John in 1 John 4, 17 says, when God's love in us is made complete, it gives us assurance, it gives us confidence for the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
This is what G.I. Packer's been driving at in the whole chapter. That for us to, to know with a surety the, the, um, the adequacy of God for everything to keep us, to protect us, to provide for us, to bring us ultimately home to heaven. Having a full sense of the adequacy of God, it dispels fear. Perfect love. love when, the love of God, when it is complete in our hearts and mature, it drives out fear. We love because He first loved us. And so when we are secure, trusting, resting in the love of God, when that love is mature and made perfect in our hearts, it brings a confidence. It drives out fear. gives us confidence that we belong to God and that we are His. And we have no need fear the day of judgment. And J.I. Packer says, this is as high in the knowledge of God as we can go this side of glory. To have that relationship of confidence, of love, of full assurance, trusting completely in the adequacy of God to be for us everything that we need in life and in death for the present and for the future. He says when we come to that point of trusting in the full adequacy of God, he says we've, we've come to know God. We have been brought to the point where we can grasp the truth in descriptions of the Christian life in terms of victory and Jesus satisfies. We are more than conquerors, victory, but also that Jesus satisfies. These phrases are precious for they point to the link between knowledge of God on the one hand and human fulfillment on the other. When we speak of the adequacy of God, it is this link that we highlight. And this link is of the essence of Christianity. Those who know God in Christ have found the secret of true freedom and true humanity. That is, when we see God, when we see Christ, as the end goal, that Jesus satisfies. That is when we come to know what really being human is all about, that we have come to know who God is and why we are here. We have been brought to the point where we both can and must get our life's priorities straight. So many in our day seem to have been distracted from what was, is, and always will be the true priority for every human being, and that is learning to know God in Christ. Psalm 27, verse 8. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And I pray that that will be your prayer and your life's goal. That is to seek God, to seek to know him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to come to know that you are his that you belong to Him, and that you can have then that full assurance and confidence in the adequacy of God for all that He has promised to give you. May you find your source of joy, of meaning, of purpose, of fulfillment in God, and in that reach the heights, the pinnacle of knowing God in this life, this side of heaven. And I pray that this study has been helpful to you. It has been to me. And uh, I hope that you'll continue to draw on it, go back to it, and use it as a resource to help you grow in your Christian life. 
Let's bow in prayer together. Father, I thank you for this study that we have had the privilege of being able to walk through together as a church. Thank you for this resource that has, I believe, faithfully uh, expressed uh, what the scriptures have to teach about who you are and how we can come to know you in a greater way. But Father, I pray that we would move beyond just the facts and the doctrines and that we would then seek to apply those truths and doctrines to our life and to, to, that those truths that your word reveals about you would become a way for us to draw near to you in our relationship of faith and trust and love. Father, I pray that you would continue to help us to rise in our quest of seeking to know you in Christ. So Lord, bless your people, bless our church family, and may we seek your face, Lord. May your blessings come to rest on us, Lord, as we seek to walk in your ways. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless you this week.